Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're here with another episode of Hard to Guard TV. And today I got um, a great friend, uh, someone who I've looked up to for a long time. Uh, we go back and forth. He's a basketball junkie just like myself. He is the owner, CEO of JDS Sports, um, which is a sports and entertainment holding company. My man, Peter Robert Casey. What up, Peter? Edgar, how are you, man? Always good to see your face, especially during COVID times. <laughs> how you been holding up? Doing okay, man. Spending a lot of quality time with the family. Work is keeping me extra busy. Uh-huh. And um, basketball's back, so I can't complain at all. So I want to just talk, I want to take it back because, um, you know, we met when uh, you was briefly working with the New York Knicks. Actually, you was working with St. John's first, and that's when we first met, and you was in the social media world. And then we got cool when you started working with the Knicks as that you was yeah. the first social media hire from the for the New York Knicks. Um, let's talk about like, you know, how did you get into the whole social media platform? Yeah, so the five, first five years out of college for me, I worked at Columbia University and the kind of constant theme for my entire career has been the idea of community. And so at Columbia, my role was in student affairs and, and I was tasked with building community with the graduate school of education called Teachers College. And so it's mostly teachers and principals, non-traditional students. They were full-time teachers during the day or working on the admin side of schools. And then at night they'd come and study. And so it was a huge challenge. And so I had to you know, do everything from create um, original programming, whether it was you know, student organizations overseeing that function to um, cultural experiences, taking students to Broadway shows or to a Yankee game, um, to professional development opportunities and just allowing students to connect with one another. Um, and during the course of that time, my, my first love in life is hoops. Like you, man, I'm a junkie. Mm-hmm. And this is, at, this is in the era of 2007, 8, 9, when social media was just being born. And so initially those tools were used to connect with family members and old classmates but started seeing something else there. I saw it as an opportunity to also connect with professional uh, folks in in a specific area of interest. And so I started blogging about the idea of like, how can we use these tools, whether it's for for teams, for leagues or brands um, to create business utility around the social media tools. So I, I created this blog in 2008, which led to that opportunity that you mentioned earlier, which was to cover St. John's exclusively on my Twitter feed, which was a completely novel idea in 2009. And they gave me a press pass to do that. And so I got lucky. I was in the right place, right time, very early. And that became a national news story covered in the New York Times, Sunday edition, ESPN, Sports Illustrated picked it up. And that's how Scott O'Neill kind of saw that article in the Times and uh, the the marketing department reached out for the Knicks. So for yourself, did you know like this is the future when you, or did you have a feeling like right, this could probably get me into certain places that I probably never got in before? You know, because I didn't have direct experience in the field of sports business, I figured it, I knew I had to do a non-traditional path in. And so everyone I talked to at that time was telling me, hey, the best way to break into the business of sports is to go sell tickets. That's kind of the backbone of the industry. Mm-hmm. And just knowing my skill set and my interests, I knew that didn't align very well. And so I figured there had to be another way in the door. And so when social media was like there, ripe for the taking, my, my strengths are around writing, um, coming up with creative concepts and things of that nature, not necessarily selling tickets. And so I focused on what I was good at. 
And um, I no, I didn't see what social media would become at the time. In fact, journalists were still kind of laughing at the idea of of using it during the game. Most most folks on press row were just, you know, filing a traditional story. They would mail it to their editor as soon as the buzzer kind of rang the end of the game, and they'd file it for the, either the web or the newspaper. Meanwhile, I was tweeting the whole game, and this is before Twitter had its own, um, you know, video platform and picture platform. I had to use third party tools to like show fans what the television cameras were not showing. And so just trying to be creative on the fly to give fans a different perspective about St. John's basketball. And then New York Knicks saw that and there was something again they wanted to embrace early and they were yeah they were the not only not only the first hire they were the first team to kind of hire someone dedicated to you know using these tools be kind of being an embedded reporter for the team and covering them from a unique perspective as well. Now obviously um you was hired by the great Scott O'Neill. Um how was that? Because, you know, he obviously is a trailblazer in this um, industry. And what did you learn from him uh, going forward? Yeah, actually, I was more directly reporting up to Hunter Lockman at the time. Hunter, um, and so but yeah, I think Scott was the one who saw the, the article and, and kicked it over to Hunter and, and this guy, Jordan Mallow, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, both of those guys. They saw it as an opportunity at the time we launched a platform called Nick's Now. And it was the first micro content platform, you know, short form video, short form text, uh, photo galleries, all in real time. And um, it was a unique opportunity. Again, this is early days, 2010 at that point. And so, you know, Scott, Scott was the president of the team um, and what he was doing from the business side of the Knicks. I think they had sold at that point the largest sponsorship in, in, the, in the franchise's history. And social media was actually another way that we could activate sponsors. So there was like three pillars to it. Obviously, building community is the first thing, right? Engaging fans, um, keeping them up to speed on everything happening with the New York Knicks. But the other business side of it, and this is what I was learning when I started blogging about it, social media was a ripe opportunity to activate brand sponsors. So back then we had Party City. They owned the last five minutes of the Knicks game. And so we used to create a, a video package for them you know, at, during crunch time, it was also another place where you can drive tune in, hey, games coming on, because that's how the Knicks make money. And then the third is obviously selling tickets. And so those all those worlds came together through social media. And so we was kind of getting an early glimpse of like the business function and business utility behind the tools themselves. So, you know, we, you stay with the Knicks for a couple of years and then you decide to uh, move forward to Team Piffany and start working uh, your main your main client was Nike. Yes. Um, why did you decide to leave the Knicks? And can you talk about the experience of working with uh, Coltrane and, and Team Piffany? Yeah, this was 2012 at that point, and they just had won the Nike social media business. And what was interesting to me was, you know, you see the product that Nike puts out. I've been a longtime fan of their products. But I, I wanted to be a part of the creation of the stories behind those products and how they were released and how can we use social media to release products or tell the stories, the insights behind the shoes, the apparel and then things of that nature. And so it was an awesome opportunity. Coltrane was always is to this day an innovator. Um, their bread and butter at that time was events. And so social media was kind of a new area of the business. So I was excited by that challenge too. Like how do we build out that whole entire business unit, not just the account with Nike, but Nike represented a massive opportunity. We launched their Nike basketball's Instagram channel back then. And I remember all the planning going into that launch, um, getting an editorial calendar together, 
doing all the photo shoots, the video shoots, um, what the rollout looks like. So it was just, it was a great time, great era to kind of be at the ground floor, especially for a brand like Nike. And so you, now, you know, you're, you're, you're learning from Coltrane, you learn from Hunter, Scott O'Neill, uh, you know, you know, you decide to finally leave Epiphany and you start, start pretty much doing your own thing. All right. So at that point, yeah. what did you say? You know what? It's 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 Peter time. <laughs> you know what? It's <laughs> take a leap, leap leap of faith. Yeah, it was less about me. It was more about, and I always suggest this to students or you know graduate students who are like trying to figure out where they want to go next. You got to know what makes you tick. I realized pretty early that the way I'm wired, I enjoy working with startups more than mature companies, big conglomerate companies, and I figured. If I want to do that, what does that look like? And how do I work with startups? And so I had I had one of my own. You know, I launched an app in yeah. 2013 called Basketball Passport. Initially, it ultimately became Sports Passport. And so, I, you know, I built something, launched something, um, brought, brought in a brand sponsor in New York Life Insurance, which was a Fortune 100 company. And I just got excited about the idea of not just you know, being an entrepreneur, but working with other entrepreneurs. And I got lucky. Again, a lot of my story, I feel like, um, is not really planning so much as it's the Lord kind of directing my life and putting me where I need to be. And I met Joe Sandberg, whose initials are JDS for JDS Sports. And um, we were look. you know, he had to own five-star basketball at the time, which I've worked with, um, went to the camp as a high schooler. And we looked at buying Slam, great brand that needed to be modernized and re-energized and reinvented in, in that time a 2017 world. And so that just, again, was a massive opportunity. I grew up with Slam, had the first issue as a seventh grader. Um, you know, I literally read it all the way through college. And so it was, a, it was a great opportunity. And then beyond Slam and Five Star, JDS Sports, we started making investments with complementary businesses that can help one another grow. And so that's a mix of early stage startups, all focused on like content, um, but also um, we do some acquisitions as well. You know, through through a partnership, we acquired the film and TV unit called The Orchard from Sony, which we rebranded as 1091 Pictures. It's a film and TV distribution company. And so we're opportunistic in the sense that in the middle of our portfolio is Slam and Five Star. How do we surround those companies with assets that can help us grow, whether it's our audience growth or revenue growth and vice versa. So, you know, um, obviously, you know, uh, your baby, you know, you, you, when you pitch slam the first time, obviously it didn't work out the first time, but it worked out the second time. Can oh. you just talk about the, uh, like the process and like how determined you was to try to acquire it. And because what you do, what you're doing with slam today, for me, it's amazing. You know, I applaud you, you know, a thousand percent. And can you talk about like how you've helped build it to where it is on a digital platform? Yeah. And I, I don't want to take credit for it because it was building a team and the team has really done a lot of the work. It was really just us helping facilitate the deal side of it and helping from a strategic standpoint. But all the credit really goes to the, the team at, at Slam specifically. Yeah, we initially tried to make a run at it in 2014, 15 and the, the old parent company decided to, to shop it to the street. And so, you know, we backed off and they, they shopped it around. And two years later, you know, sometimes when you hang around the hoop in basketball, you catch an offensive rebound. 
And so we hung around the hoop. Two years later, came back around. We were able to, to do a transaction. And they had a great core team already. They had a great brand already, well-recognized. Um, it was largely still a magazine with a, a decent social footprint. But the idea was like, how do we extend this amazing brand that's so globally respected and recognized into new ways? And so those extensions to us were pretty natural. One was content, right? You don't want to go too far from the origin and DNA of what Slam is. And to us, that represents storytelling. It started out in paper. It evolved to pixels, social, and, and ultimately even long-form content that we can sell to third-party brands, networks, and, and platforms. The middle of it was taking this great brand and extending it into direct-to-consumer e-commerce. And that's everything from commercializing all the iconic covers that Slam had over the years. And we did that through a partnership with Mitchell and Ness, including building our own inline Slam brand through apparel. Um, and then just like also, you know, credit to the team reinventing what print looks like in a modern world. So the idea of newsstands and subscriptions, which still exists, is was more of the legacy business but creating these special issues that go deep on a singular topic, whether it's the 96 draft class or we're doing a top 50 college teams of all time issue for March Madness, things of that nature, and selling them directly through our online platform, slamgoods.com. And then the third area, which you know, COVID has kind of put on pause for the time being is events. We feel like is a huge growth area um, in the future for Slam. All right, so you, know, you started, um you know, you, you get into RTG features or uh, start doing films. Um, what made you, how, how did it come about where you, you know, you guys got involved in knowing that you wanted to do long form films? One of the things when we were looking at Slam that we saw as an asset was at the time they had over 200 issues of the magazine. Every single issue had over a dozen stories. When you started adding up, the base of IP and all the stories that we can kind of mine the archives and look for things that we can adapt into long form content. The, the ideas and the opportunities just seemed endless, right? So that was kind of the starting point. Um, then we were like, what is the first story that would make sense to tell out of RTG? And um, one of our colleagues at the sister entity that I mentioned, 1091 Pictures, saw the Stefan Marbury doc at Tribeca Film Festival a kid called The Kid from Coney Island. And Stefan was in the first slam high school diarist in the magazine. His team was featured in the second issue of all time. And they're based in, you know, you know Lincoln High School is in, is in Coney Island, Brooklyn, in our backyard where slam was headquartered and born. It just made so much sense to get behind that story. And then the biggest thing that took it over the top is Kuti and Chike as a director duo. We've been huge fan of their work for years at that point. Um, and so it was a no brainer for us to kind of kickstart RTG with that project. And then, so, you know, we bring a lot of assets to the table. One is we, we have strategic financing capabilities so we can, you know, provide development dollars. We can co-finance or fully finance a project. We can come in at the end and provide finishing funds. We also have a massive, you know, 15 million fans globally. So, we can drive awareness, we can drive conversation, we can drive tune into these projects. So we feel like that's an asset that we can leverage when we sell projects to third parties that gives us a unique advantage. And then lastly, our, our access to talent. So a kid from Coney Island, we brought Kevin Durant on as, and Enrich Kleiman as executive producers to that project. Again, which gives the project more clout, more thrust um, and a bigger audience to, to reach its end consumer. 
Um, I came for Coney Island, a uh, great film. Um, I was privileged to, you know, get invited and see it. Um, can you talk about the relationship uh, that you and Steph had, like during the process? Yeah, that that film was actually already completed, so it, it debuted at Tribeca. So we weren't a part of the production process like Hootie and Chike were. I mean, they did that. It took them about four years to do that project, start to finish. Um, so we came in at the very bitter end, which is why we can't really take credit. We were more of a distribution partner and putting our marketing muscle and might behind the story. But also because of all the assets we have, we can bring that to life through print, through social, through the web platform, through our newsletter. And so that was the value add to um, Netflix, who ultimately bought it was like, hey, listen, Netflix can offer significant productions, the studio directly, or they can come work with us and we can help light it up, give a lot of energy and awareness around the film so that by the time it comes to Netflix, people know about it to watch it. And so to us, it was just a no brainer. But we we didn't work with with Stefan from from Jump Street on that project. It came in at the end. Can you talk about um, some of the future work that you, that you have going on? Yeah, some of the stuff that's been announced already. One is a, a documentary on Georgetown and John Thompson that we're doing with Kirk Frazier, who did the Lem Bias 30 for 30. So that, that project's been in development for over a year now, and we're out to market with that. It's a great story. You know, unfortunately, Big John passed away last year. That's one. We have a John Moran docu-series that we're doing with Dexton Debury of Falcon and also DLP Media that we announced on the unscripted side. And then on the scripted side, we're working with Charles Barkley's, you know, Round Mound Media on a scripted series called The Line about that 51 scandal in New York City with all the point shaving. And so that's a tremendous project as well. So those three plus we have a full slate that I can't yet share, but there's a lot of stuff that's cooking on the simmer, simmering right now that we're excited to share later this year. What what tweaks your eye that you say, you know what, this might be good for RTG or Slam? I mean, the story has to be authentic. Like Stefan was in the pages of Slam itself. So that was a no brainer. He was also on five covers. Um, and basketball has to be the hook, but not the story, right? Like Stefan's story was a story of redemption. Here's a kid from Coney Island. What seems to be a guy achieving his dream, making it all the way to the league, becoming an NBA all-star. And then his life comes crashing down when he was on the New York Knicks. You know, he falls into a deep depression when he lost his father you know, gets traded a couple more times and just like he's down and out. Yet he goes all the way to the other side of the world. And that's where he ends up finding happiness in China, becomes a you know multi-time champion, MVP of the league, has a statue outside the arena, has a museum dedicated. So that's a story to us was about family, faith and redemption. So what we look for is like, what is the, the transcendent story here? Basketball is the hook in because it has to be authentic to slam. But it has to be more than that, you know, for it to have, you know, to cut through all the noise out there. There's a lot of content. And so we look for something that is bigger than just basketball, but but uses the game as a hook in. Can you talk about like up to this point, what have you learned from each uh, major person that's entered your life in the sports thing to invent, help you with your business career? I mean, for, for Joe specifically, I would say just how to you know, size up a deal and do a deal. That's one. Two is he always talks about this, the idea of creating goodwill. I mean, Joe, Joe has a huge heart. Him and his 
you know, his wife and his family, and they're all about giving back. And I feel like when you give back and, and pay it forward, good things come out of that, right? And, and, and it's not manipulative. You're doing it out of the goodness of your heart. And so, for example, just to bring it back to RTG, for example, when KD came onto that project, you know, there was no amount of money we could pay KD and Rich that would make them excited, especially for a documentary. There's just not enough meat on the bone. And so what we did was we teamed up with his charity, the KD, you know, Charity Foundation, and we refurbished a couple of basketball courts in Brooklyn, right? That kind of inspired another initiative that we're doing at Five Star. We just completed a court refurbishment in San Diego with Bill Walton to honor his first coach that he grew up around. So like it's in his, his hometown neighborhood. He refurbished the court. Once COVID kind of calms down, God willing, we'll go out there and do a proper unveiling. But the things I've learned are, you know, do a deal, deal make, make sense for both parties. Because, you know, if you take advantage of someone during a deal, it always comes back to haunt you, right? And they'll never want to do a second deal with you. So always sizing up a deal, doing a fair deal, um, but also goodwill. Um, this is, life is short, the world is small. With the internet, it gets even smaller. And when you work in a specific industry like basketball, it's even smaller than that. And so, you know, you're always going to come around and bump into the same people. And so you want to make sure you treat them right. Um, you do a deal that's fair and, and you just you just a respectful, transparent, honest person at the end of the day. Can you talk, let's talk about um, your involvement with uh, Five Star and um, how did you and Joe um, get involved with Five Star? Yeah, it really predated me. It was Joe, Joe and Nick Blatchford, who at the time was at, you know, he founded New Heights, a nonprofit in New York City that's like education and empowerment and building leaders um, with student athletes. And after he launched that, ran it successfully for 10 years, he kind of passed the baton over to Ted Smith at New Heights, who's still the current executive director. And Nick and Joe acquired Five Star to really lean into the high school game from a media perspective. And so I think their thesis was was spot on. You know, as we're seeing today with with slam overtime ball is life. High school basketball is massive. You know, guys like Jalen Green, who's now in the G League, and Lamella Ball, who's like a rookie, they have more followers and attention in high school than probably 80% of guys in the league. And these, these are high school players. And so, you know, they they extended a camps business into the into the media space at the time. Um, and that and that's how I met them. That's how they came to be. I, I met Nick when I was still working at Columbia University and we used to grab coffee when he was kind of ideating around like all the, you know, the business he was building around what was before five star. He was going to build something from the ground up. And so I met them. I met Nick early on first and then just met Joe just by by coming into the office. You know, he'd come in once a week and we would rap about hoops. And he had two kids at the time who were at the time they were seventh and eighth graders and they were they were playing basketball. He was coaching. He just loves hoops like we do. Yeah, we, yesterday, you know, we lost a great man, Tom Kachowski, and I know you had a relationship with him. Um, can you just talk about briefly the relationship and the conversations you guys had? I owe Tom a lot, you know, and I'm going to miss him a lot. When I, before I worked at Columbia, believe it or not, I, I went to school there first as a student, grad student, and three days into my first semester, I dropped out. I was pretty much overwhelmed by the idea of taking on all this student debt, one. And then two, I kind of had a little bit of uncertainty about around my career path. And I thought it would be smarter for me to go work in that field of higher education administration um, before like 
earning a master's in that and then kind of spending all that money on, 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 on a degree. During that time of having to move home, dropping out of grad school, I had no plan B. I had to move home. It's kind of really humbled and start my job search. I was looking for advice of someone, people I respected. And for some reason, I didn't know Tom. I knew of Tom. I met him at Five Star briefly as a camper way back. And he's impossible to get a hold of. As you read in these articles, he had no email, no cell phone, no computer. And so I reached out to his brother, Steve Kanchowski, who's a legendary coach in Canada. And Steve gave me his home address and I wrote him a letter, a handwritten letter. And a month after that, I kind of almost forgot that I wrote the letter. He called me and um, I'll never forget this. I was in Syracuse at the time visiting a friend and he called me and he said, Peter, got your, I got your letter. How could I help? And I was telling him, I want to I want to work in basketball. I don't have experience in basketball and I don't know if I want to coach or work on the business side. And he goes, he told me this and it stays with me to this day, he says, Peter, there's no substitute for experience. If I was you, I would call your high school or AAU coach, see if you can volunteer and you know build experience. Don't look for a paycheck. Just go get experience. And I did that. I took his advice. And literally that next day, I emailed my AAU coach and I spent that whole next season volunteering as a coach with him. And, you know, I played one year of division three basketball and kind of lost that burning fire for the game. And, but when that one year that I spent coaching all because of Tom's encouragement, that fire was relit and it kind of pushed me forward into this path that I ultimately went down, which was like you mentioned, initially Rucker Park, St. John's, the Knicks all the way till today. Where do you think, uh, how does the future of five star look like for you? You know, we still do camps and clinics because that's the backbone of the business. And it, you want to, like I said, with Slam earlier, you want to always stay close to the DNA. Um, and we, we're going to be doing that actually in partnership with New Heights at the New Bedford Armory um, and also with the NBPA. So we run camps and clinics with our, our friends, our former Knicks colleagues, Dan Gladstone and Chris Jean from the NBPA. So we're going to feel it out this year with COVID, whether it's safe to do so. But the, the plan is to run a camp in, in late August. And then in the fall, we want to do a 10-week development program with New Heights, five-star kind of development program powered by New Heights. And that'll consist of like you know progressive skill development that leads into competition and ultimately will crown a champion. But more year-round instructional program. That is the mission and mantra of Five Star: is teaching the game the right way, the fundamentals, and helping kids get better. And then we're doing these court refurbishments that I mentioned earlier. That's our give back initiative. So we just finished one with with Bill Walton. We did the one with KD. We're looking at other opportunities for 2021. And then the last thing which I can share is content. So we're working on a six-part podcast narrative on the history of Five Star Basketball Camp. Think of it as like an audio documentary, and that's in production right now. We already we already completed the first episode, and we're rounding out the next five to finish by you know by March Madness. So that's what I want to talk about. Like, where do you think uh, you know you look at all these other basketball sites? Uh, the value of content is going down the road. Yeah, I mean, content can serve multiple purposes. One is to just serve the audience, right? It doesn't even have to be monetized. It could be just to serve and, and grow an audience. So that's that's one huge value that content that brings to the table. The second one is, is you can plug in a brand, right? And, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Sometimes it's not just a logo slap, it's product integration, right? Or it's, it's the brand helping co-create whatever the content may be. 
Um, but yeah, content could take on a lot of different flavors and sometimes it could be short form, mid form, or even, even a long form project, but content, our whole entire strategy, Edgar is very simple at slam. It's, it's the idea of content plus community drives commerce, right? And we sometimes look at that actually in reverse commerce first. So there's no transaction without trust and to build trust in 2021, it's really about doing that through community right? Being authentic, being consistent, being reliable, being accessible. And content is what fuels community, right? It's what people come to, you know, click that follow button for. It's like, it is for that, that sense of content and the community that something you're feeding me something that I have an interest in as well. And so, you know, as long as you do that, I think content will, will continue to be king, right? Distribution can be queen, but in context could be queen, but content still is king in 2021. Um, what any mistakes you made in the past that you wish that you could change while you was learning this whole process of, you know, becoming a CEO? Yeah, mixed today. I make mistakes every single day, frankly. Um, as far as big ones is <laughs> I'm a man of faith, so I operate from there first. And sometimes not preying on a big decision is where I run into a mistake. And I know that sounds crazy in the business world, but to me, it's an imperative and important to make the right decision. And so that's a mistake I sometimes forget to prey on a decision before making it is one. Um, but also just like I said earlier, in a deal, you have to to do a, to do a deal, you have to know what the other side wants as well, right? What are their motives? What are their interests? And how do you create a win-win? That's always the goal for me in doing a deal. So like, if you don't find out what the motivations of the other side are, and you're only looking out for yourself, usually it's not a win-win deal that ends up happening. And then the deal ends up falling, either the deal falls apart or the relationship falls apart because both sides aren't happy. And so I learned that early on in my career, right? It was always like, how do I get the best deal for myself? But I realized just like relationships, business deals have to have a win-win situation for them to, to grow. Otherwise they just don't grow. So uh, those would be the two things that, that come to mind first. And can you talk about the value of having um, great people around you? You know, at Slam, you have Dennis, you know, you have your partner, yeah. Matt, um, you know, Samir. Absolutely. Can you talk about that value that it has for you and trying to get ahead? Yeah. I mean, it's always about surrounding yourself with like-minded, like-hearted people who are wired the same way. So like good people at the core, right? You always want to work with good people. I think that's like rule number one. Um, two, for me, especially, I always like to hire people smarter than me, right? If I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm doing it wrong because I, I can't, I can't empower and trust someone to do something if I'm smarter than them at, at a specific, um, you know, uh, service skill or, or whatever. So always hire people smarter than you, good people, honest people, and people smarter than you. Um, and, and, and good, you know, that that's just like the simple recipe for life, not just business. And you become who you hang out with, right? And you spend time with. And when you set, when you surround yourself with winners who are smarter than you, you become smarter. And so that it's just simple advice, but it, it's timeless advice. So um, where do you see Peter in two to five years? And where do you see Slam and JDS in two to five years? I mean, still CEO at JDS, you know, bigger team at JDS, we'll hopefully have more investments. You know, we're continuing to lean into, you know, we're, we play at the intersection of content and commerce, right? That's the theme of the portfolio. And commerce is starting to broaden to the idea of collectibles, 
we're seeing this renaissance in the trading card space. We're seeing the rise of digital collectibles. We're seeing memorabilia having another um, kind of tailwind at its side. So we're looking at opportunities in that space. So you'll probably see some more logos from the collectible space in the JDS portfolio. So I would say that's where those two brands are. And then Slam, like I said, the communities that we've built is we've taken a very verticalized approach. You know, when we bought the business in 2017, it was Slam and Slam Kicks. And we, we realized very early on when you post high school content on the main slam, it would underperform relative to NBA content because that wasn't the expectation. That's not what someone clicked the follow button for. That was what launched Slam High School as its own vertical and then League Fits and W Slam and Slam FTW. So what you'll see a lot more from those is like taking those micro brands that we've built in those communities and starting to commercialize each of those in a smart way. So there'll be a lot of that. And then two, Slam, Basketball is a global game. And so you'll see Slam uh, actually in the in the coming year, a lot more global initiatives from the brand as well. Those would be two key areas. Uh, and what do you think about, like, I don't, you don't have to answer it or not, the, the whole thought of the talk of like uh, high school kids becoming semi-professionals, because <laughs> I have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you tell me, I've been doing all the talk. Like, you tell you me. Know, there's like, you know, they talk about, you know, like uh, exactly what LeVar, Ball's dad did with the, the high school kids turning, you know, semi-professional. Um, I don't like it personally. I think, you know, it's not cool, but, you know, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Well, I mean, there's two sides to that story, right? Basketball, on one side of the story, basketball is one of those last sports where p kids can't go pro early, right? They, like they do in Europe, playing tennis, golf, and some of these other sports. And why is that, right? And there's, you know, I'm not smart enough to know all the answers for that, but that's one side of the story. And so there's like a disadvantage in basketball where you can't do that. The other side of the story um, is turning pro too early and maybe getting bad advice that, hey, you are a pro. What does that, you know, what is the opportunity cost of that? If I turn semi-pro as a high schooler, am I now ineligible to go to attend college, which for some people could be a, a breakthrough and a game changer for their life, getting an education, that scholarship, um, or even like the platform that college basketball represents in a, in a more future state where there's name, image, likeness, monetization, right? Where it's more balanced and fair, because that, that's, a, that's a whole nother conversation um, as well. So I feel like it, there's two, two sides to that story. It definitely could be a slippery slope if the wrong players who shouldn't be pros are pros and they're sacrificing the ability to go to college, um, get an education, you know, play college basketball and then become pro later should their game develop and they, they reach that point. So, you know, it depends on how you look at it and it depends on who and it depends on who's given the advice. Because Sometimes, as you know, in grassroots basketball, there's a lot of people who have an agenda who are hanging on to kids who are feeding them advice because it serves their agenda or their purpose more than the kids. And so that's real in the world of, of grassroots basketball. I see it all the time and kids get bad advice, you know, uh, not all the time, but they get bad advice. And so, you know, I try to look at it through a balanced lens. Yeah. Well, you know, Peter, you know, I appreciate you giving me your time. No, you thank know, you, man. If people want to go uh, to JDS, where do, uh, where do they find a kid from Coney Island? Where do they find you on Twitter and Instagram? So kid from Coney Island is on Netflix for the next couple of years. So you can watch that there. Our website's JDSSports.co. But I would say follow Slam at Slam on IG. 
um, or at Slam Online on Twitter. And then you'll see on in the bio of each of those, each of our communities that I mentioned before. So you could get to any one of those League Fit, Slam Kick, Slam High School, on and on through there. I appreciate it, Peter. Yo, stay on for a quick second while we get off. I appreciate you, you coming on. Thank you, Edgar.